Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, we're continuing our Halloween Havoc anthology as we take on WCW Halloween Havoc 1992. Q, it felt like a lot has changed in WCW since the previous year, and really a lot had. You know, especially coming right on the heels of having done literally the year before, this show feels completely different. Like the production feels different, the direction feels different. It feels more focused, while at the same time also being a terrible show. Yep, terrible in a whole different set of ways from the yes. last time. Um, so the big change from 1991 is that the evil is finally gone. Jim Hurd resigned at the beginning of 1992. He was replaced by Kit Fry, who, by most accounts, was a good guy who didn't know a lot about wrestling, but at least wasn't a complete asshole like Hurd was. Um, his big innovation was he did a match-of-the-night bonus that he paid to the two wrestlers who he thought had you know worked the hardest and had done the best job in their match, which I think is a great idea. Yeah, especially since <clears throat> on that last show that we did, there was a whole lot of people who just didn't seem like they gave a shit. At least this incentivizes people to try to have the best match on the card. Like, it's a good idea. Like, try to imagine all the money that, like, Dolph Ziggler or somebody like that would have made if they still did that today. Like, it's, it's a cool idea. Yeah. So, Bill Watts also came in, and the power structure here is kind of unclear to me. I don't know if Watts is the executive vice president, or if he's the head booker, but he's running things. This is a Bill Watts show from top to bottom. You can see it. Yes, there's a lot of rugged people doing clotheslines on this show. It's a Bill Watts show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Watts had a phenomenal run with Mid-South Wrestling in the 80s, built that from a regional company to a company that was able to go national and caught some hard luck with the economy in the Southwest. Uh, bombing right as he was making his national expansion, but he'd been out of the game for a while at this point. One thing I've come to believe about wrestling is you can't take a break and come back to it. It just doesn't work that way. No, it definitely doesn't. Like We can't understate exactly how credible Bill Watts when he got this position. I mean, Bill Watts is a guy who Vince McMahon actually respected enough to ask for advice on his product at some point. Like it, It's he is a very significant presence, and what he accomplished with Mid-South is one of the most incredible booking things in the history of wrestling. It's amazing. There are a lot of people yeah. who thought that when he was coming in, he was going to fix everything. Jim Ross staked his whole reputation on it. Like, oh, Bill Watts is coming in. That's my guy. He's going to fix it all. Yeah. So it seems like most of Bill Watts' changes were to make the wrestlers' lives worse backstage. Um, lots of rule changes. Um no breaking the rules in the ring without permission. If you do that, you get fined because you're putting heat on the referee if the spot isn't set up correctly. Um, he took the mats off the ring floor. We're going to have concrete out there because we want more people to get hurt when they fall to the outside. Um, no fighting on the floor without permission. That's only reserved for big matches, which I don't actually have a problem with that one. That I'm okay with. Um, no using the barricades or ring posts as weapons. And most importantly, no moves from the top rope. Those are banned, both in kayfabe and in reality. Now, <clears throat> it must be said that this is an era where kayfabe is kind of dying. And a lot of what Bill Watts wanted to achieve is basically a return to kayfabe. 
Now, that's not something that you can really put back into the box after it's been taken out, but like especially when it comes to just like some of the stuff where he wants everybody to look tougher. He wants everybody to look like more of a badass. Like he wants wrestlers to appear like they did in the 80s to be like legitimate sporting athletes who can kick your ass. I don't really think that that worked per se. And like I've heard his rationalization for the top rope and stuff like that like he wanted to make it special again. But I don't think he really he definitely he clearly did not understand where wrestling was going. Clearly. And he clearly like was like, no, no, everyone's fucking everything up. They're going to ruin the business. And he was wrong. And that's the thing. Like, I can't blame him for some of these decisions, but he was clearly provably wrong. Absolutely. Um, other Watts rules. Uh, no leaving the show before the show ends. No visitors in the locker room, including families. And keep kayfabe outside the arena. So no heels and baby faces traveling together, socializing together. None of that. I mean, it's all straight out of the nineteen early 1980s. I did love the nobody leaves the show before it ends rule because apparently that would lead to every single person on the whole roster in their car in the parking lot in a big long line <laughs> waiting to drive away. Like, I just, I, I, I get sort of the idea that, like, guys should stay and watch the matches to get better, but at the same time, I don't know about that. Like, that, that seems excessive. Yeah, young guys, you got to watch this Ron Simmons versus the Barbarian match to get better at your craft. <laughs> um, Watts is just, he's hes told we got to cut costs more. They've already cut costs a lot, but they're doing it even more. Everybody is getting their pay cut or told you're going to get jobbed out if you don't. Pillman refused to take a pay cut. Watts told him, okay, um, then, you're, then I'm going to job you out. And Pillman said, okay, but I'm going to be the richest jobber in wrestling history, which I love. One of the classic lines in wrestling. <laughs> yeah, like, this, this is the problem, is if somebody's not a mark, there's nothing you can threaten them with. Yeah, like, you'll just, you just bide your time and then go make more money somewhere else, especially if you've yeah. got a name. Like, you can't... I'll lose, I'll lose fake wrestling matches every week, and I'll get a big paycheck for it. it it's just funny, because Bill Watts was a bully. And it worked when it worked, but on a scale like this and like a corporate structure like he was in, he was doomed to fail right from the beginning. Like it was just a bad idea. Yeah. So to kind of recap the events that led us to this show, um, Lex Luger lost the world title to Sting at Super Bowl in early 92, and then Lex Luger left for the World Bodybuilding Federation. Um Sting only held the title for a few months. He lost the title to Vader at the Great American Bash. This seemed like it was going to be the crowning of WCW's new monster heel champion, but that turned out not to be the plan. Um, Jake Roberts made his WCW, WCW debut on August 2nd. He jumped the rail. He attacked Sting, beat him up with a chair, DDT'd him on the chair, Great segment, brutal beatdown, great get for WCW to land Jake at this point. He's only a couple months removed from being a big player in the WWF, having his feud with Savage, feuding with The Undertaker, being in a big match at WrestleMania 8. But it's Jake Roberts. He's completely unreliable. We know this. Yeah, it's not going to last. It's going to be beautiful while it's there. Like This show was wildly successful. Yeah. This was the most successful WCW pay-per-view until Hogan came in. 
Like, that's insane. Like, just a mat, but like, we were kind of discussing it earlier, and I was, I kind of pointed out, like, this is one of the first times that a real dream match happens. Like, before the, t in the territory days, everybody kind of worked everywhere. But after the split, this is one of the first times, like, hey, I wonder what it would be like if Jake Roberts wrestled Sting, like a main eventer from one promotion versus the main eventer of another. This is really one of the first well promoted dream matches in wrestling history after like the split from the territories. Yeah, and the way they present it was very, it, it was like an invasion angle. He jumps the railing, security's coming after him, Jim Ross is going crazy, Jake Roberts doesn't work here, what is he doing here? Great stuff. Yeah, it's completely awesome. Everything about this storyline is really cool. Well, up to this point. Yeah, so it's determined that they'll have a spin the wheel, make the deal match where the match stipulation is randomly determined by the spin of the wheel. Now, I think this is a fun gimmick. I've always loved like the raw roulette uh, when they're in Vegas. I don't think it's a good idea to build a pay-per-view around this. Although this pay-per-view turned out to be successful, I don't think it makes sense to ask people to spend money if they don't know what they're getting. Yeah, I definitely do agree with that. And it's never really a thing that winds up being super successful, especially not in the long run. Especially, well, I guess this is the question. Do you think the, the wheel was rigged or do you think it was actually random? No, I think it was rigged because there's some stuff, we'll get into it later, but there's stuff on the wheel that like aren't real matches. Yeah, it really seems like they struggled to come up with 12 different gimmick matches and they're really 12 versions of the same fucking match. Uh, for the most part, but it, as I think is legendarily infamous, it lands on the coal miner's glove, which is just the stupidest gimmick match. Like the most 1970s Southern wrestling gimmick. I can't wait to talk about this because literally of all the gimmick matches that have ever existed, this is probably the stupidest one. It's way down there. Um, so part of the series of events Sting was supposed to wrestle Vader, but because he was attacked by Jake Roberts, he couldn't do it. So um, they did a random drawing. Apparently Big Watt, Bill Watts was big on random. The random drawing, Ron Simmons was drawn for the title shot. And on TV, he beat Vader to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. And become the first african-american world champion it's a cool moment and it's special yeah. like and the crowd pops for it at the time like absolutely you like and you got you see when they pan the crowd you can see like black men crying it's a gigantic deal and it's hard to think about just how big of a deal this is today but this is 1992 there has never been a black world champion there's never really even been close to a black world champion like it's not it, now, it was territory champions, but yeah, you know, JYD in mid south, but no, never even. Um, I'm trying to think. I think Bobo Brazil fake won the NWA title at one point, but it was a dusty finish. Yeah, it's just it's just one of those things. Like this is a big big moment, and it would have been nice if it had been on pay per view. But still, it, it's arguably in front of far more people, so it's kind of cool. Like it's a cool moment in wrestling history, and for all of his actual super duper racism bill watts loved to have a top baby face who was a black guy and like yeah. 
it, it created a great moment here. He's clearly trying to recreate Junkyard Dog. Yes. It does, it does not work out that way. Ron, Ron Simmons, I, it's, it's just Simmons a year later, I just don't think they're presenting him right. They're just presenting him as this, like, this all-American goody two-shoes guy. Like, Ron Simmons has attitude. Like, Ron Simmons is a hard-ass, like, tough guy. Ron Simmons is great when he's yelling at somebody, and he's not allowed to yell at people in this character. Ron Simmons wouldn't find himself until the APA, honestly. Like, he, until he could just be a cigar-smoking motherfucker who stiffed everybody and was great. Like, that's Ron Simmons. And they wouldn't let him be Ron Simmons until, like, six more years from now. Until it was too late. Yes. Like, a young Ron Simmons who gets to have that gimmick could have gotten over anywhere at any time. But it just, they never tapped into it. And here he's defending the world title against the Barbarian. <laughs> At first, I was I, I was excited because it was like, hey, he got his main event push like Kyushuana, and then I remembered it was the Warlord that you wanted. Yeah, I wanted the Warlord, man. What the fuck? Why can't uh, Warlord get a shot? The Barbarian is being trained by Cactus Jack, which is kind of cool, but I much would rather seen. Ron Simmons wrestle Cactus Jack here. Yeah, like, I don't understand why Cactus Jack can't get into any of these big matches. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. He just got the shaft in WCW over and over. But, like, they clearly see value in him. Like, he's in so many of these segments and matches, and they kind of use him like a Swiss Army knife wherever they need someone. It's just that he can't get anything for himself. I don't think he has the body that Bill Watts is looking for. I, I think that's definitely true, which is ironic because of all the people on the show, like he's like, you need somebody who can take a stiff ass beating. It's Cactus Jack. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that was going on, and this is so strange and not really important, but I just love the politics of it. WCW and the NWA had kind of kissed and made up. Uh, they split in 1991 when Flair left. WCW, of course, immediately stripped him of the title, but the NWA continued to recognize him as their champion until he went to the WWF because they were hoping he would go defend the title in whatever territories were still around at that point. Right. Um, and they just they didn't get back together after that. The NWA has kind of been floating around doing nothing for a while, but... Bill Watts sees value in the NWA brand as promoters still continue to today for some reason. So Watts made an effort to get the NWA back. They've introduced the NWA tag titles, which we'll talk about later in the show. And now they're bringing back the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Um, Masa Chono is the NWA champion, and he's going to defend the title against Rick Rude here. Now, for my Japanese wrestling fans out there, you everybody, even just for fans of WCW during the Attitude Era too, Masahiro Chono is an amazing talent. He would go on to be one of the coolest heels and wrestlers in the entire wrestling business. He would go on to be one of the great legends, one of the three musketeers, along with Shinya Hashimoto and Kajimuto. Like, he's awesome. Right, this is not that Masahiro Chono. This is him on his learning excursion. <laughs> so just understand that this isn't Black Charisma Masahiro Chono. This is not the guy with the sunglasses and the leather pants and the back protector and all that cool stuff. This one, he's a baby. 
and he had no fucking business being in this spot. We'll get it. This is one of the all-time debacles. We'll get into it a little later. Yeah. Um, so the show is October 25th, 1992. I, I don't think scheduled against a World Series game this time. So an improvement on that front. Um, it's from the Philadelphia Civic Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Only about 7,000 people in attendance in a building that holds like twice that. Um, but the buy rate is a 0.9, which is about 180,000 buys, and it's that's a smashing success for WCW at this point. Absolutely. And, like, they got a good crowd. Like, it's not packed in there, but it, it's good for them. Especially in the north. Especially in the north. Like, this isn't Greensboro. This isn't Atlanta. This is WWF country. And it's a pretty rabid crowd. Like, they had more people at the last show, but those that crowd didn't give a shit about the show. Like, these people are in. Absolutely. And on commentary, in probably the most entertaining part of the show, is Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura. And these guys are like oil and water together. They... Jim Ross hates him so much. But, like, I, I loved this commentary team to an unreasonable extent. Like, Jesse the Body Ventura is a fucking asshole who does not care about anything on this show or anyone. And Jim Ross is just trying his best to get through the show and deal with it, gritting his teeth the whole time, making cutting passive-aggressive comments. This is the best. And Jesse Ventura wants so badly to make Jim Ross blow up at him on camera. Like, at various points, he's just like, hey, how about the Sooners losing this week, huh? <laughs> and then, like, and 10 minutes JR later, he goes back. not sell any of it. JR is just like, you just continue on calling them match. And Jesse will be like, don't have anything to say that, JR? He's like, well, I'm trying to do my job like a professional. <laughs> and then, like, 10 minutes later, out of nowhere, he'll be like, hey, were we talking about Oklahoma losing? <laughs> Just nothing to do with anything. You can just sort of tell that JR takes Jesse's goofing off as a personal insult because he's shitting on Bill Watts when he does that. Right. And you don't disrespect Bill Watts. But at the same time, it makes every match come alive a little bit. Like there's just, even when it's like a boring match, you never know what Jesse's going to say. You never know how Jim Ross is going to have to get out of it. And we'll kind of get to that as the matches go on because he delivers one of the greatest out of nowhere commentary lines in wrestling history on this show. It's just, yeah, he just doesn't care. It's in the WWF, he respected Vince McMahon or feared him enough that he would mostly kind of stay professional here there's none of that and i think this happened with a lot of guys who came over to wcw they just viewed it as clown show my favorite thing about this show is like they do this like kind of drawn out opening and we'll, we'll get to that but like and then it pans your very first image of jesse it pans to him and he's dressed like the grim reaper and he's like seven feet tall and i just burst out laughing because i'm like jesse you don't give a shit do you um, so the opening package is, I think, the first of the awful WCW like movies. Sting and Jake Roberts go to meet like in the Moss Eisley Cantina from Star Wars, <laughs> and there's like I don't know all kinds of freaks here and rough looking guys, and they kind of you know passive aggressively, sort of homoerotically, talk some shit to each other. And then lasers shoot out of their eyes. Lasers! 
uh, I bet they spent a couple hundred grand on this. I, I they're gonna get obsessed with like these kind of short films almost. Like here coming in, like Cheatham, the wrestling midget, is going to become a major part of every storyline going forward for the main event for a little while. I, I just don't I don't know what they thought this was adding, except to make it sort of kind of more grandiose and cinematic. And they're hilarious to look at now, but I, I don't know, man. There's just no point to this. No, it's it's incredibly bad. It yeah. Um so then we cut in, we see that Tony Schiavone and Bruno, Bruno Sammartino are the hosts of the show. They're not commenting on the matches. They're just occasionally going to cut to them for some analysis during the course of the night. It's sort of like the panels they do on the WWE shows now. But I, Bruno in WCW was really weird, and he doesn't seem very into this. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't do a pretty good job. I mean, it's very, like, rudimentary stuff, but, I mean, it's perfectly fine, and it's surreal to see Bruno on a WCW broadcast like this. It, it, I feel like this is just purely him kind of poking Vince McMahon in the eye. But, I mean, he seems bought in. Like, he does. it's not like one of those situations where he doesn't know any of the wrestlers and he doesn't seem like he gives a shit. Like, he's doing his best. Like, it's, it's not bad. You know, brings a lot of credibility. Yeah. Um, we get a quick video of Cactus Jack training the Barbarian. Um, there were a couple of these throughout the night, and I thought they were actually pretty good. This one, it's you know, he's directing guys in the ring to body slam him, and he's you know yelling at him to get up right away. There's a later one where Barbarian's doing push-ups, and he puts uh, like cinder blocks on his back and smashes them with a sledgehammer. I thought these were kind of cool. I just love the idea that the Barbarian went to No Selling Academy. <laughs> yep. Like he needed that. You got to train to not be able to sell. So the opening <laughs> match, we've got three geeks against three awesome guys. Tom Zank, Johnny Gunn, and Shane Douglas against Anderson, Michael Hayden. Uh, you can guess who the Philly crowd is cheering here. Guys... Arn Anderson, Michael Hayes, and Bobby Eaton are fucking cool. Like, they're yeah. awesome. Arn Anderson during this era, like, is maybe one of the most underappreciated wrestlers who ever lived. Like, he's just fucking awesome. Michael Hayes here is in, like, peak free bird. I don't give a shit. I'm a babyface in my own mind, Michael Hayes. And Bobby Eaton is, like, the quintessential technician. And the three people they put him up against are a bunch of fucking douchebags. Yeah, so you've got Johnny Gunn, who what was who was he? What was his name in the W? Salvatore Sincere, I think. In yes. The WWF. yes, yes, yes. Robert, Tom Zank, Geek, and Shane Douglas, who I think we've established I hate, but especially Shane Douglas, pre-franchise Shane Douglas, just totally out of place, like trying too hard, babyface. He's just so lame and terrible and crap. And, like, I mentioned before, like, man, I wonder why the Z-Man never got over. It's like, whoa, oh, yeah, because he's a fucking douchebag. <laughs> like, it's very clear right here, like, oh, my bad. No, I was wrong. Me and Tony Schiavone need to hang that one up. It's not happening. Um, so everyone against Z-Man 
figures out what's going on here and switches into the proper roles. The heels start working face, and the faces start working heel, except Tom Sink refuses to, even as the crowd is completely taking a shit on him. Yep. It's just great, too, because it seems like the, the young guys are supposed to get a lot of offense in and stuff, and for the first, like, ten minutes, they get none. Like, they're just like, nah, fuck y'all. <laughs> it's going to be Arn Anderson fucking y'all up for ten minutes. <laughs> the only big highlight here is Jesse Ventura making one of the most bizarre comments I've ever heard on a wrestling show. Okay, you want to take it? Yeah, let's set this up because it's in the middle of the fucking match. Like, literally, it's just been like kind of a boring match. There's nothing particularly going on. Shane Douglas tags in. He does like a kind of a cool arm drag. And literally, out of the fucking blue sky, Jesse the Body Ventura says, Hey, JR, I bet you, uh, I bet you Shane Douglas is a right wing Republican. He just seems like that kind of guy <laughs> with that haircut. Like, wh- wait, what? <laughs> I mean, I guess it was election season because this is right before the 92 presidential election. But like, just why are you making that comment here? What does that have to do with any? Like, Jim Ross is just, uh, I don't know anything about the man's politics, Jesse. And then he comes back to it like five minutes later, too, just like, I don't know, he looks like a right-wing Republican to me. I bet him and Dan Quayle used to hang out in prep school. It's just like, what the fuck? This is a baby face, Ventura. What the fuck are you talking about? I mean, on a wrestling show, is even on a wrestling show, I don't think the right-wing Republican is a baby face. Not that kind of Republican. No, and it must be said that we're in the deep south here, Jesse. I mean, this is... Philly, but we're talking about WCW. There's Bill not a Watts, lot of... Bill Watts happens to be a right-wing Republican. Oh, I guarantee you Bill Watts was hot when he heard that line. Just like, what the fuck is wrong with that, Jesse? <laughs> so Johnny Gunn gets the pin with the Thez press on Hayes, and the crowd just shits on the baby faces. Fuck these guys. And this is literally out of nowhere. They get no offense, and he wins with, like, the fruitiest. And I don't say fruity lightly. Believe me. Uh, but, like, <laughs> just, like, the daintiest. I, I, I Oh, my God. Just three fucking douchebags here. It is. They're fucking douchebags against the coolest guys on the show. You would have just, you'd pay money to see these three guys get tuned up by these three hard-ass veterans. Oh, my God. And I guess we should note, like, this is the... Well, at least two of these guys were in the Dangerous Alliance, but the Dangerous Alliance has been dissolved by this point. They've yeah, just dropped that. That sucks. In fact, I, I really wish that I understood more fully why Arn Anderson and Michael Hayes aren't higher up the card. Like, we, there's a serious dearth of veterans who can, like, help these young guys along at the top of the card... What the fuck is Arn Anderson doing jobbing around on the opening match every time? Arn should be wrestling Ron Simmons for the title here. That would be a yes. perfect opponent. Holy shit would I pay to see that match. Yeah. Um, so next match is Ricky Steamboat against Brian Pillman. This is a vast improvement on the previous match. Two super-duper athletes. Pillman has turned healers, at least in the process of it. They're just, you know, arm drags, takedowns, leapfrogs, everything you could want. Skin in the cat. Great athletic showcase here. 
have we covered a Ricky Steamboat match yet? It was just occurring to me while I was watching this that we haven't really talked about him. I think we've only done the Dragon, not yeah. Ricky Steamboat. He is so like you don't need me to tell you that Ricky Steamboat is fucking good, but this just how smooth this fucking match is just took my breath away. Like it doesn't I've never seen a wrestler as smooth as Ricky Steamboat, and I never will. Like, there's nothing like this. Like, just like rudimentary roll-ups and stuff are like exciting spots with him. Like the this match ends with like a reversal into a pinning predicament that I've seen a hundred thousand times, and it was cool when he did it. Yeah, sunset flip, roll through, roll through. Pillman gets the win, or um, Steamboat gets the win. Really good match. Love seeing these guys wrestle each other. See, literally, there was nothing in this match that was not so silky smooth that it almost looked like ballet. Like it was that good. And it's only got ten minutes. I would have watched it for another twenty. I'd, I'd watch an Iron Man match between these guys. <laughs> Hell yeah. Like, it was great. Yeah. Um, so, backstage, Teddy Long interviews the NWA champion, Masa Chono, uh, Hiro Matsuda, and Kanzuki Sasaki through an interpreter. Um, and he makes his selection. We're going to have an American referee and a Japanese referee tonight. Um, Rick Rude has selected Harley Race as his referee. Uh, Chono selects Sasaki as his referee. Yeah, it must be said that like the NWA prison at the time was Hashi Sakaguchi, who is the guy who's in there, like the tall guy, who was a major, major, major star in Japan. Like he was like Anoki's tag team partner back in the day. Big deal. Uh, they get his name completely wrong. They call him Saji Sakamoto. Um, <laughs> Close. And they try to communicate through the interpreter to be like, hey, uh, who's the referee going to be? And he just kind of vaguely points at Sasaki because I guess he was probably told to do that. But, like, nobody knows what the fuck is going on here. Now, this this entire... The entire use of the NWA and especially the, the Japanese element of it is just a terrible miscalculation. And we'll kind of get into that more. It's They're so. trying to recreate the success that they had with Muda, which, like, I totally understand that because that was wildly successful for them. But that was a very special case. Most people on their excursions are not so fucking advanced that they can be main event performers right off the bat. And Chono is not there. No. Um, no, not at all. So then Bill Watts comes out, kind of in his kayfabe role as you know, the president of the company. What do you think of having the guy who's actually being in charge also be the guy in charge on screen? It can work, especially if they're already they've already been like kind of an on-screen presence before. Like obviously Vince worked because we all associated him with WWF way before he was revealed to be the actual owner of WWF. You know what I mean? Like he'd always been on screen. We're familiar with him. Bill Watts had obviously been a wrestler before and was a little bit comfortable on screen, so it's kind of okay. But the thing about that is is that there's two ways to do it. Either you're part of the storylines and you're part of this world that you're creating, or you kind of keep yourself apart and you show up just to like lay down the law, and I don't like that second one. I don't like him showing up here, and like he literally buries Terry Gordy in real life during this promo, and I'm like, whoa, that's not okay. Yeah, so it's a strange segment because he has to make a bunch of announcements and changes to the card here. And he's like trying to play it cool and act like this is 
you know, kind of business as usual, but it's really not. So he says, Terry Gordy, Gordy has been fired because he now showed some dates. Um, Steve Austin is going to replace him and team with Steve Williams in the tag title match. And Rick Rude is refusing to wrestle twice, so Rude is going to be allowed to get to defend the U.S. title for him. And that surrogate will be Big Van Vader. And he's tr just trying to be very business-like about this. This is all insane, what he's saying here. Yeah, like, let the record show that three segments earlier, they do a promo with Rick Rude about how he's going to have to defend, like, have two matches tonight. And he's like, oh, shit, that sucks. Like, there's no indication that they know at that point that they're not actually doing that. Yeah, yeah they probably changed their mind about it. So we get Vader defending Rick Rude's U.S. title against Nikita Koloff. There is no selling in this match. This no. is the hard way match. It's um, such a drop down the card for Vader, too. He was world champion like a month ago. I It was... It, it was a really bad – I mean, he ends up having a really good title reign in 93, but it was really dumb to take the title. He should have been the Brock Lesnar of WCW. He yeah. should have killed Sting and won the title and held it for a long time. Everywhere outside of Japan never got Vader right. And I don't know if it was just that they didn't want to build the whole company around him because Vader was kind of a volatile guy or whatever the case may be, but, man, he could have been so much bigger than he was. Yeah. Here, he, I think, is filling the role of the guy who's teaching Nikita Koloff a lesson. Uh, this felt a lot like he's stiffing Nikita to send a message to Nikita in the locker room. Now, let the record show, I, I've never liked a Nikita Koloff match before, ever. And, like, I've seen the stuff of Magnum TA, I've seen the stuff with Dusty Rhodes, I've seen all the good stuff. Never really liked any of his matches. I liked him here. Like, he's doing stuff that good. he never did. Kind of weird for Nikita Koloff to be a babyface, but I guess I guess the Cold War was over at this point. Yeah, he's playing babyface. He's doing like kind of like some high flying stuff. Like you never saw Nikita Koloff as a fighting from underneath underdog, and so it's kind of cool to see him like that here. No, but Vader kicks his ass and pins him with a power bomb in a good big man match. Yeah, this is pretty good. I, I genuinely liked it. It was fun. Um. So. I don't know. Is Vader the U.S. champion now, or is Rude still the U.S. champion? Rude's still the U.S. champion, though. <laughs> I mean, you would have thought you would have at least gotten a Vader versus Rude match out of this, right? Yeah, Rude, Vader was apparently just in a favor-given mood. Honestly, like how this is a monster that you can't tame. How the fuck is Rick Rude just convincing him? I, I guess the answer would be like a briefcase full of money, but like they never show that. Or pork chops. Pork jobs. There you go. All right. Next up, we get uh, what I would say was the best match of the night, but maybe also the strangest. Barry Windham and Dustin Rose defending the NWA tag titles against Steve Williams and Steve Austin. And, I mean, just to jump to the ending right away, this match goes to a 30-minute draw. Let me be clear. If you're going to do a 30-minute fucking draw oh in a tag team match, it better be a fucking good match. I thought this was really, really good, but 30 minutes is still kind of pushing it. And, like, especially since this is not, like, the superheated match that it could have been if it was really Steve Williams and Terry Gordy versus Wyndham and Rhodes. Like, it's... 
the entire story of this match coming in is that Wyndham and Rhodes don't like each other and are having problems. Like they've been manipulated into having this kind of like bad chemistry together. That doesn't say to me superheated tag team match that goes 30 minutes to a draw. Like it doesn't compute to me, you know? Yeah. So WCW brought in Terry Gordy and Steve Williams, two Bill, I mean, two Bill Watts guys, two big football player types, badasses, put them together as the miracle violence connection. I don't know if they actually use that name in WCW. I think that may have only been their name in Japan. Yeah, that was but, their all Japan name. Okay. But they put these guys over like monsters. They had them beat the Steiners. They had them beat everybody. They built the Clash of the Champions in the summer and the Great American Bash around making them the NWA Tag Champions. And now Terry Gordy's fucked off back to Japan. It must be said that at this time, they were among the best tag teams in the entire world. If you want to have a good old fucking time, you go on to YouTube right now and you watch the Miracle Violence Connection versus Mizawa and Kobashi versus the Holy Demon Army versus, oh my god. Like, the matches that they were having in All Japan at this point are outrageously fantastic. So bringing them in like here, it's almost like a no-brainer. Like, look, these guys have been tearing it the fuck up. They're Bill Watts guys. You put them over the whole fucking roster, it's going to be great. The problem is, much like when we did Stan Hansen at that other WCW show, these guys aren't really super loyal to WCW, and no. they don't really give a shit about Bill Watts. Uh, the money's definitely better in Japan than in Bill Watts booked WCW. Yeah, WCW is still on its ass, and All Japan is on fire. It's going to be real hard to keep him here, and Bill Watts does not help that situation. No. So, Gordy's gone. It's Steve Austin and Steve Williams, which is a pretty cool tag team. Um, and Steve Austin was a great tag wrestler. Um, 30 minutes, long, long heat segments here where Wyndham and Dustin both get worked over. There's a clusterfuck at the finish here where with about a minute left, like they go to do the false finish spot and the bell rings, but then they're just kind of like, oh no, the bell rang prematurely. That's not the end of the match. I don't know if that was real or not. Yeah, I'm not really sure if the guy who was ringing the bell thought it was actually the end of the match, but it was super confusing and killed, like, killed all the heat right there at the end. Because the crowd was like buzzing like, wait, what? Is it over? What's happening? And then the crowd really heats up for the last minute, where, of course, the Dustin gets a tombstone, but one, two, bell rings, time limit. Uh, a good match, but longer than it really needed to be. 20 would have been fine here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <sighs> then we get an interview with Vader, Polly Dangerously, and Medusa. Uh Paul E. just kind of goes off on a rant on Medusa out of nowhere, just being like, you've been holding us back. You're a stupid, stupid woman. You can't do anything because you're a woman. What are you going to do, woman? And then Medusa proceeds to kick his ass in probably the best moment of the show. Oh, absolutely. Like, I don't know if this had been building up on TV for a long time or whatever the case may be, but, like, literally, he just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that match, by the way, I hate women. Women, women, women. They suck. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Always making you clean the dishes. Fuck women. They suck. Medusa, you're horrible. Oh, she kicks the shit out of him, and it's amazing. 
And I love, oh, it was totally fucking amazing. She like high kicks him right in the fucking face. It's hilarious. Yeah, and then just pops huge. And like, I don't know, I don't know what they do with Medusa after this, really. Like, there's nothing for her to do as a baby face woman on her own on this card. There's no matches for her to yeah, have. Not long after this. My favorite part of this, too, is the implication. Like, the implication with this always was strongly that she was, like, banging Recruit on the side to keep him focused. Which, I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. And so, but, like, the best part after this is, like, Jesse Ventura being like, well, what's Recruit going to do now, now that his assistant is gone? <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> um, so next up, we get Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal. No Jake here. Sting comes out, and he gets to spin the wheel. Uh, let's what are the choices this. on the wheel? Yes, let's pull up all of the different ver ways of saying street fight. Yeah, basically. Um, what, what's on there? There's Prince of Darkness match. God, uh, I wish I knew what that was. <laughs> Texas Death Match. Uh, was a blindfold match on there? Yeah, uh, the chain match was on there. Uh, the Texas bull rope match was on there. Um, cage match? No, they didn't have a cage. No, it wasn't a cage. Uh, so there's a bunch of basically, I mean, I think there was Falls Count anywhere. There's a bunch of no DQ type matches. And then there's the coal miner's glove match. So, of course, it lands on the coal miner's glove. Like it, it's hard, it's hard to overstate how stupid the idea of like literally every match on there is at least vaguely interesting. Like most of them are just variations on Street Fight. They kind of like pan the camera across all of the props that they would use for all the Street Fight, which I thought was kind of cool. And then it lands on the one that you know is stupid. Like literally all of the other ones sound cool, and this one's just like, oh, I see. <laughs> Yeah, um, but hold on. Let's let's describe the way that they spin the wheel and make the deal because spin the wheel make the deal is the best part of this entire show. Sting comes out and has to walk up to a set that has like two giant metal snakes with like glowy eyes, like and there's like fog all around, and there's this metal wheel which kind of looks like a almost like a razor blade that's kind of like spinning around, and he's just like, oh. Oh my gosh, this is this is scary. What do I do? And then he spins the wheel. Ostensibly, he what's the deal that he's making? <laughs> you spin the wheel and then you wrestle a match. That's the deal. I guess that's the deal. So he spins it, it lands on Coal Miner's glove, and Sting looks excited, like, all right, I got what I wanted. The Coal Miner's glove match. <sighs> The urban legend for years has been that the wheel wasn't gimmicked because it's so insane that this is what they would pick. But the wheel was gimmicked. This is what Bill Watts wanted to do. It's just old Southern wrestling. I think this was a big deal match in the Mid-South in the 80s for it's, some reason. It's just so weird. Like, I think about all of the stuff that they did with The Undertaker and WWE. Like, the weirdest, wackiest out there, stupid, like, graveyard shit that they ever did right 
they used to do that stuff in WCW all the time, but rather than have like just the Undertaker be the through line, the through line was instead was Sting being a normal dude who has to be in that world all the time. Yeah. Like poor Sting was just always wandering through weird graveyards and shit. Oh, this match would have been better if it had been a graveyard match. It would have been better if it had been anything. I would have loved to have seen the Prince of Darkness match. Whatever that is. And that's why you can say the wheel was not game. Because what is a Prince of Darkness match? Yeah, I'm sure they just, real had, they just made it up to pad that out. Yeah, I think they had trouble coming up with 12 things to put on the wheel. Which just shows how short-sighted they are. Like, there are hundreds of gimmick matches out there, and literally Bill Watts couldn't come up with any that didn't involve hit him with stuff. Uh, so next up, we've got Masa Chono against Rick Rude for the NWA title. There's two referees. Uh, Harley Race is the referee in the ring, and Sasaki is the referee on the floor. Yes, and they make this so overly complicated. Like, they do a coin toss before the match starts to indicate which one would be on the floor and which one would be in the ring. There's all these people. The ring introductions take, like, 20 fucking minutes. And, like, it's a fun kind of side note to me that there are three IWGP champions here. There's Chono, obviously. Sasaki, who would go on to be, like, the biggest star in the early thousands for New Japan. And Manabu Nakanishi, who was an Olympian that year for uh, Japan, who would wind up being a future uh, NJPW champion himself. So that, that's all kind of cute and funny to me. The important thing to realize about this is that Chono does not speak good English. He does not. That's and why this we. This is why there's two referees. Yes, like they're they're going to have such an impossible time putting this match together because they're basically Harley Race and their interpreters on the outside, and Sasaki's there, and they're all trying to help them call this match, and it's not going to happen. No, and there's just nothing you can do if you don't like not being able not being able to talk to each other. You would have to plan the entire match out in advance, and that's tough to do with no element of improvisation so we just end up with a 20-minute headlock here like literally like that's not an exaggeration if there are a lot of ways for there are a lot of matches that have been had over the years between two people who didn't speak the same language when there's no chemistry there and there's no plan ahead of time really all you can do is mat wrestle because you can't do complicated spots because you're not sure that that person's going to be there where you need them to be if you mat wrestle on the ground, you don't really need to talk about it. So literally, they're just exchanging fucking headlocks for hours and hours. Crowd doesn't care at all. Crowd's not behind. I mean, the crowd is not going to get behind Chono. One, because they don't really know who he is. But two, he's a Japanese guy in America in the early 90s. You know, this, this is a generation removed from World War II. There's still a lot of anti-Japanese prejudice. And in the, he's in the, the baby 80s face. and 90s, there was the yeah, there was this idea that you know Japan is taking over America. Japanese companies are buying up all these American companies. Jesse he, like throws this in on his commentary at points during the match. Yeah, literally, he just keeps talking about Japanese nationalism over and over, and it's kind of creepy. Yeah. Um, yeah, throws in something about auto workers losing their jobs because of Japanese cars, like. Not, I mean, yeah, he's the heel attacking the baby face, but it's not really fit in the match. 
No, it, it, it's just rotten. And Rick Rude, like, as you said, like, he had a, a tendency to have matches like this from time to time. Like, if he doesn't have chemistry with a guy, he's not going to force it. He's just going to sit down. Like, it's just, there, there was no way for this to be a good match. And complicated by this is the fact that the NWA World Heavyweight Championship carries with it politics automatically. Like, the board of directors is still has to decide and vote on who the champion is. Like that's I'm a, kind of shocked they convinced them to put the belt on Rude. Yeah, like that's but that means that every time you had a big match like this, it was a clusterfuck finish. They did the same thing with Fujinami versus Flair, like I think the year before, yeah, in ninety one, Rumble in the Rising Sun, right? Yeah. And like it, it's you can't have a clean finish. You can't. So what the fuck is the point? Yeah. I this finish is almost it's hard to explain what happened here, but there's shenanigans with the two referees and Rude wins with the Rude Awakening and he's the new NWA world champion. We haven't even discussed kind of the implications of two belts, but I hate two world titles. To me there's there's one world title and that's your belt and that's the one that means everything. Don't acknowledge any other world title. I mean, if you're going to do it, you have to move towards unifying them as quickly as possible, right? Yeah. Like, if you're going to do this, you have to have Simmons and Rude face to combine the belts. Like, that's the only way. You can't have two belts going simultaneously. And that's my least favorite thing about the brand split is who's the champion of WWE right now? Nobody, really. I mean, it's just the two belts. When you have two, you don't have one. And that's what, it, and then what you get is two champions, but the face of the company is somebody else, and like that's not good. That's not a good thing. No. And so this belt ends up hanging around in various forms for three years. The. Yeah. <laughs> and it never. They don't, get, they don't get rid of this thing until Hogan comes in. And it's it's not great. It'll never. It's never connects to the crowd. Who I mean, we're not very far removed from the NWA. The NWA should still mean something, and it already doesn't. It's only been, you know, WCW, they, they stopped calling themselves the NWA kind of in, like, 90-ish. So, it's yeah, it's only been about two years. You know, the NWA title, yeah, yeah. It, it, but the brand has just lost all meaning that quickly. It's just funny. Like, can you imagine if in, like, 2003, like, there had been, like, a WWF world title? And a WWE world title at the same time. That's how weird this is. I mean, well, it's, well, they had they had the NWA title belts as the World Heavyweight Championship because somebody convinced Vince that if we're going to have two brands, we got to have two titles. Yeah, it's it's super fucking weird and bad. Like this match it wasn't sucks. successful, but they've gone back to it for some reason. Guys, I was so excited when I saw this match in this card. I was like, "Oh <laughs> shit, Rude and Chono!" Like I got like really excited in my voice and steve was like oh no dude no oh you've never seen this no <laughs> oh, no. no 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 <laughs> yeah just a legendarily bad match yep um, and things don't get a ton better from here uh the next match is ron simmons defending the world title against the barbarian i why just why <laughs> why He's a big, impressive guy. He's got Cactus Jack managing him. That's cool. They don't really feature Cactus much in this match at all, though. No. Like, just kind of think about, like, all of the people who were around during the Hogan era. All those, like, 
the millions of like random heels who are like always kind of floating around. You could take any of them and put them in this match and it's a better match. And I don't hate the Barbarian, but it's just like, why would you put a green shitty heel in with a green shitty baby face? Yeah, so Simmons Simmons gets kind of a cool entrance where he's got, like it's the Mike Tyson entrance where he's got a bunch of police with him. And he's got Teddy Long managing him, which is kind of an odd fit because Teddy Long's a heel manager. Well, especially uh, since Teddy Long throws in some racist commentary about how now that he's won the title, he's got all these hangers on around him. Yeah, <laughs> that was nice. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about a nice another bit of Jesse commentary during the Vader match. Jim Ross is talking about Vader's football career, and he says he has a football he has a Super Bowl ring from his time with the L.A. Rams. And Jesse calls him out. He's like. The Rams have never won the Super Bowl. What are you talking about? And then he just keeps burying JR about that for like five minutes. Yeah. Like JR tries to move on. He's just like, no, but when did the Rams win? I don't remember that happening. What, did he get one for being the loser of the Super Bowl? (laughs) I don't know if he actually played in the Super Bowl, but he was on the Rams the season they made it to the Super Bowl and lost to the Steelers. I think that was 1980, but... The whole thing there. It was just kind of a hilarious bit of like Jesse and JR don't get along. Oh man. Which match was the one where he just randomly comes out and just like, hey JR, did you watch the Oklahoma football game this week? How'd that go for you, huh? Ah. Yeah, they lost to Kansas by about 30 points. I don't remember which match. That may have been in the tag match because there was a lot of time to kill in that match. And he just goes back to it like five times. And JR's just like, yeah, I guess we didn't win that one. Yay. Yeah. These guys are such a shitty pair. And it's but funny. I love it. This is my dream comedy. Like, this is my favorite play by play guy, my favorite color guy. And they're just absolutely terrible together. Yep. It's just, uh, it was too beautiful to be good. Yeah. So Simmons wins this with the power slam. It's not terrible terrible but not good it's not good and the fans do not give a shit it's the barbarian he's not been built up for this it's just at least Simmons against Cactus fully would have killed himself to make the match watchable exactly it could have just been like a complete bump fest for 10 minutes (laughs) yeah and I don't know I mean Cactus Jack, even though he's you know not a big bodybuilder like the Barbarian, because Foley is so insane, he just presents a danger. Right, and you could have made it... Well, I guess you couldn't have made it a weird stipulation match because we got that coal miner's glove coming up. Big hot coal miner's glove match. But the other interesting thing about this show is it's sort of like an inverse of the NWA formula that we had seen before where like the longest match goes on last and it's for the title and like... There's a 30-minute match, then a 22, then a 12, then a 10. Like, it gets shorter and shorter to the end of the night. It's just very weird. Like, there weren't really shows like that up until now. Yeah. Um, so it's main event time. We made it all the way through it. It's time for the Coal Miners Glove match. It's um, Sting versus Jake the Snake Roberts in a Coal Miners Glove match. So the way this works, you win by pinfall or submission. The coal miner's glove is 
hanging from a ridiculously tall pole in the corner. We're talking this, about like the top of Hell in a Cell tall. <laughs> as soon as they put this thing up, I'm like, oh my god, how are they going to climb this thing? Literally, like, like when Jake when, is not in peak condition here. When Jake gets in the ring and he looks up at that thing, like I can swear I can see in his eyes him thinking, <laughs> I'm not climbing that shit. <laughs> Yeah, like you imagine Jake Roberts like trying to climb the rope in gym class. This is that. <laughs> he's he's looking a little chunky at this point. And it's literally just a big pole. Like that shit is so dangerous. <laughs> so they just have a match. It's a boring match. Jake's not there. He's the demons are clearly catching up to him at this point. And we haven't really mentioned, but it's kind of important to note that all, like, Jake's whole point throughout this is that he's brought a snake with him that is poisonous, and he's going to have it bite Sting and kill him. A murder match for the second year in a row. And But, like, that's what it's all based around, is Sting being afraid of the snake. They even go so far as to say, like, WCW officials are on hand with anti-venom that they specially developed to combat the toxins. Yeah, from WCW Laboratories. There you go. So, like, that yeah. that's, like, a big focus of the match is where's the snake? Why doesn't he have it with him? Yeah. So, Jake hits the DDT. He tries to climb the pole. Stick wakes up, knocks him out. Uh, Cactus Jack shows up. Cactus Jack and Sting have been feuding uh, throughout the year. They had a really good match at... Uh, Beach Blast, I think it was called back in the summer. Such a good match. Um, yeah. Um, Cactus comes out with the Cobra. Jake gets the snake out. Sting climbs up the pole, gets the glove. Sting hits Jake with the glove. The snake, Jake is trying to get the snake to bite him, and the snake just, wa snake's not working with him. So he literally just kind of like holds it on his face and mimes being bitten by it. And it looks stupid. Was this stupider than when Jake showed up on Raw a couple years ago and put his snake on Dean Ambrose and like Dean just cracked up? I mean, that was... <laughs> I almost feel bad for Dean in that situation because like he was probably living like a childhood fantasy right there and it was really stupid. So I don't really blame him for busting out laughing. But no, this was stupider. Because literally, like, think of all the times that Jake's worked with the snake. And this time, like, he just, it's not a particularly big or threatening looking snake. And he's just kind of holding it on his face. <laughs> and just like, nope, nothing's happening. Yeah. I guess I'll just writhe. <laughs> yeah, the, the snake just not selling for Jake here. Um, so, Sting wins. And then Jake is. You know, staggering back through the curtain. And this might be the last time we ever saw him in WCW. If, if he was around after this, it wasn't for long. Um, I think in kayfabe terms, the snake killed him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Watts, Roberts fan, they had clashed during Jake's time in Mid-South back in the 80s. So Watts, Jake had signed, agreed to a big money contract before Watts came in. Watts was not going to pay him that. 
wanted to cut his pay, and that that was the end of that. So this is Jake Roberts' one and only WCW pay per view. I mean, <laughs> does that surprise anyone? Honestly, <laughs> no. It's pretty much par for the course with Jake. Yeah, just how it goes. Want to play twenty one? <laughs> I got twenty two. <laughs> so. That's Halloween Havoc 92. I, I don't know. Was this show better than 91? It, it must be said. It was at least more lively. Like, the crowd was more into it. It seemed like, despite the fact that the show was full of chaos and garbage, that there was a direction they were trying to go into. Like, it was clear that Bill Watts was trying to form this into his vision. And maybe he could have had he not been a huge racist dickwad piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. He lasts about another year after this before... I can't remember who it was. It was either Wade Keller or Mark Madden. He did with um, some publication where he praised um, a business owner who closed his restaurant rather than serve black people. And uh, whoever it was uh, sent that interview to Hank Aaron, who was... Yeah, you know, a vice president at Turner Broadcasting, and that was the end of Bill Watts in WCW. Yep. Arguably, the only good thing Bill Watts ever did during his time in WCW was piss out the window of his office into the parking lot, which is pretty funny. <laughs> Somehow, yeah, Cowboy Bill Watts just didn't fit in with the corporate culture there at Turner. So instead, they got Eric Leather Jacket and Jeans Bishop. <laughs> Yeah, um, we'll get into the early Bischoff era in WCW at some point. Uh, I think we've said before, Bischoff doesn't get enough credit. Oh, no. Like, he's he's the one who turned it around from this pile of absolute bullshit garbage, which doesn't get any better before he takes over, believe me. And the unbelievable international product that it became. Yeah. And we're going to get into that era next week, because next week we've got Halloween Havoc 1997. Holy shit, I'm so excited to do this. It's been 20 years since this show, which features the best and the worst of WCW. Like, the horrible Japanese integration on this is going to be so much better. You got Yuji Nagata versus Ultimo Dragon. You got Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, DDP against Randy Savage in a last man standing match. And the infamous main event, Hogan versus Piper, Age in the Cage. Age in the Cage. And it must be said, yet another match where the gimmick suggests that someone is going to die. <laughs> <laughs> That was the real running theme of Halloween Havoc. It was, and arguably only Jake died. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's what we've got for you next week. Uh, it's going to be a good one, I can promise you. Uh, just that late, those late ninety WCW shows are just always fun. In some great stuff, some terrible stuff, a little bit of everything. Hell yeah! All right. So that wraps us for Halloween Havoc 1992. Tune in next week for Halloween Havoc 1997. See you guys later.